Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 26 King Mahavi A goodly-sounding title, and why should I not bestow it upon the foremost man in the Valley of Taipee? The Republican missionaries of Oahu caused to be gazetted in the court journal published at Honolulu the most trivial movements of His Gracious Majesty King Kamehameha III and Their Highnesses the Princes of the Blood Royal. Footnote Accounts like these are sometimes copied into English and American journals. They lead the reader to infer that the arts and customs of civilized life are rapidly refining the natives of the Sandwich Islands. But let no one be deceived by these accounts. The chiefs swagger about in gold lace and broadcloth, while the great mass of the common people are nearly as primitive in their appearance as in the days of Cook. In the progress of events at these islands, the two classes are receding from each other. The chiefs are daily becoming more luxurious and extravagant in their style of living, and the common people more and more destitute of the necessaries and decencies of life. But the end to which both will arrive at last will be the same. The one are fast destroying themselves by sensual indulgences, and the other are fast being destroyed by a complication of disorders and the want of wholesome food. The resources of the domineering chiefs are wrung from the starving serfs, and every additional bauble with which they bedeck themselves is purchased by the sufferings of their bondsmen, so that the measure of goo refinement attained by the chiefs is only an index to the actual state of degradation in which the greater portion of the population lie groveling. End of footnote. And who is his gracious majesty? And what the quality of this blood royal? His gracious majesty is a fat, lazy, negro-looking blockhead, with as little character as power. He has lost the noble traits of the barbarian, without acquiring the redeeming graces of a civilized being, and although a member of the Hawaiian Temperance Society, is a most inveterate dram-drinker. The blood royal is an extremely thick, depraved fluid, formed principally of raw fish, bad brandy, and European sweetmeats, and is charged with a variety of eruptive humors which are developed in sundry blotches and pimples upon the august face of majesty itself, and the angelic countenances of the princes and princesses of the blood royal. Now, if the farcical puppet of a chief magistrate in the Sandwich Islands be allowed the title of king, why should it be withheld from the noble savage Mahavi, who is a thousand times more worthy of the appellation? All hail, therefore, Mahavi, king of the Cannibal Valley, and long life and prosperity to his Taipean majesty. May heaven for many a year preserve him, the uncompromising foe of Nukahiva and the French, 
if a hostile attitude will secure his lovely domain from the remorseless inflictions of South Sea civilization. Previously to seeing the dancing widows, I had little idea that there were any matrimonial relations subsisting in Taipei, and I should as soon have thought of a platonic affection being cultivated between the sexes as of the solemn connection of man and wife. To be sure, there were old Marheyo and Tinor, who seemed to have a sort of nuptial understanding with one another, but for all that I had sometimes observed a comical-looking old gentleman dressed in a suit of shabby tattooing, who had the audacity to take various liberties with the lady, and that too in the very presence of the old warrior her husband, who looked on as good-naturedly as if nothing was happening. This behavior, until subsequent discoveries enlightened me, puzzled me more than anything else I witnessed in Taipei. As for Mahavi, I had supposed him a confirmed bachelor, as well as most of the principal chiefs. At any rate, if they had wives and families, they ought to have been ashamed of themselves. For sure I am, they never troubled themselves about any domestic affairs. In truth, Mahavi seemed to be the president of a club of hearty fellows who kept Bachelor's Hall in fine style at the tea. I had no doubt but that they regarded children as odious encumbrances, and their ideas of domestic felicity were sufficiently shown in the fact that they allowed no meddlesome housekeepers to turn topsy-turvy those snug little arrangements they had made in their comfortable dwelling. I strongly suspected, however, that some of these jolly bachelors were carrying on love intrigues with the maidens of the tribe, although they did not appear publicly to acknowledge them. I happened to pop upon Mahavi three or four times when he was romping, in a most undignified manner for a warrior king, with one of the prettiest little witches in the valley. She lived with an old woman and a young man, in a house near Marheyo's, and although in appearance a mere child herself, had a noble boy about a year old, who bore a marvelous resemblance to Mahavi, whom I should certainly have believed to have been the father were it not that the little fellow had no triangle on his face. But on second thoughts, tattooing is not hereditary. Mahavi, however, was not the only person upon whom the damsel Mununi smiled. The young fellow of fifteen, who permanently resided in the house with her, was decidedly in her good graces. I sometimes beheld both him and the chief making love at the same time. Is it possible, thought I, that the valiant warrior can consent to give up a corner in the thing he loves. This too was a mystery, which, with others of the same kind, was afterwards satisfactorily explained. During the second day of the Feast of Calabashes, Cory Cory, being determined that I should have some understanding on these matters, had, in the course of his explanations, directed my attention to a peculiarity I had frequently remarked among many of the females, principally those of a mature age and rather matronly appearance. This consisted in having the right hand and the left foot most elaborately tattooed, while the rest of the body was wholly free from the operation of the art, with the exception of the minutely dotted lips and slight marks on the shoulders, to which I have previously referred as comprising the sole tattooing exhibited by Fayaway, in common with other young girls of her age. The hand and foot, thus embellished, were, according to Cory Cory, the distinguishing badge of wedlock, so far as that social and highly commendable institution is known among these people. It answers indeed the same purpose as the plain gold ring worn by our fairer spouses. 
After Kori Kori's explanation of the subject, I was for some time studiously respectful in the presence of all females thus distinguished, and never ventured to indulge in the slightest approach to flirtation with any of their number. Married women, to be sure. I knew better than to offend them. A further insight, however, into the peculiar domestic customs of the inmates of the valley did away in a measure with the severity of my scruples, and convinced me that I was deceived in some at least of my conclusions. A regular system of polygamy exists among the islanders, but of a most extraordinary nature. A plurality of husbands instead of wives, and this solitary fact speaks volumes for the gentle disposition of the male population. Where else, indeed, could such a practice exist, even for a single day? Imagine a revolution brought about in a Turkish seraglio, and the harem rendered the abode of bearded men, or conceive some beautiful woman in our own country running distracted at the sight of her numerous lovers murdering one another before her eyes, out of jealousy for the unequal distribution of her favors. Heaven defend us from such a state of things. We are scarcely amiable and forbearing enough to submit to it. I was not able to learn what particular ceremony was observed in forming the marriage contract, but am inclined to think that it must have been of a very simple nature. Perhaps the mere popping the question, as it is termed with us, might have been followed by an immediate nuptial alliance. At any rate, I have more than one reason to believe that tedious courtships are unknown in the Valley of Typee. The males considerably outnumber the females. This holds true of many of the islands of Polynesia, although the reverse of what is the case in most civilized countries. The girls are first wooed and won at a very tender age, by some stripling in the household in which they reside. This, however, is a mere frolic of the affections, and no formal engagement is contracted. By the time this first love has a little subsided, a second suitor presents himself of graver years and carries both boy and girl away to his own habitation. This disinterested and generous-hearted fellow now weds the young couple, marrying damsel and lover at the same time, and all three thenceforth live together as harmoniously as so many turtles. I have heard of some men who in civilized countries rashly marry large families with their wives, but had no idea that there was any place where people married supplementary husbands with them. Infidelity on either side is very rare. No man has more than one wife, and no wife of mature years has less than two husbands. Sometimes she has three, but such instances are not frequent. The marriage tie, whatever it may be, does not appear to be indissoluble, for separations occasionally happen. These, however, when they do take place, produce no unhappiness and are preceded by no bickerings, for the simple reason that an ill-used wife or a henpecked husband is not obliged to file a bill in chancery to obtain a divorce. As nothing stands in the way of a separation, the matrimonial yoke sits easily and lightly, and a Taipei wife lives on very pleasant and sociable terms with her husbands. On the whole, wedlock, as known among these Taipees, seems to be of a more distinct and enduring nature than is usually the case with barbarous people. A baneful, promiscuous intercourse of the sexes is hereby avoided, and virtue, without being clamorously invoked, is, as it were, unconsciously practiced. The contrast exhibited between the Marquesans and other islanders of the Pacific in this respect is worthy of being noticed. At Tahiti, the marriage tie was altogether unknown, 
and the relation of husband and wife, father and son, could hardly be said to exist. The Aruri Society, one of the most singular institutions that ever existed in any part of the world, spread universal licentiousness over the island. It was the voluptuous character of these people which rendered the disease introduced among them by de Bougainville's ships in 1768 doubly destructive. It visited them like a plague, sweeping them off by hundreds. Notwithstanding the existence of wedlock among the Taipees, the scriptural injunction to increase and multiply seems to be but indifferently attended to. I never saw any of those large families in arithmetical or step-ladder progression which one often meets with at home. I never knew of more than two youngsters living together in the same home, and but seldom even that number. As for the women, it was very plain that the anxieties of the nursery but seldom disturbed the serenity of their souls, and they were never to be seen going about the valley with half a score of little ones tagging at their apron strings, or rather at the breadfruit leaf they usually wore in the rear. The ratio of increase among all the Polynesian nations is very small, and in some places as yet uncorrupted by intercourse with Europeans, the births would appear but very little to outnumber the deaths, the population in such instances remaining nearly the same for several successive generations, even upon those islands seldom or never desolated by wars, and among people with whom the crime of infanticide is altogether unknown. This would seem expressly ordained by Providence to prevent the overstocking of the islands with a race too indolent to cultivate the ground, and who, for that reason alone, would by any considerable increase in their numbers be exposed to the most deplorable misery. During the entire period of my stay in the Valley of Taipee, I never saw more than ten or twelve children under the age of six months, and only became aware of two births. It is to the absence of the marriage tie that the late rapid decrease of the population of the Sandwich Islands and of Tahiti is in part to be ascribed. The vices and diseases introduced among these unhappy people annually swell the ordinary mortality of the islands, while, from the same cause, the originally small number of births is proportionally decreased. Thus the progress of the Hawaiians and Tahitians to utter extinction is accelerated in a sort of compound ratio. I have before had occasion to remark that I never saw any of the ordinary signs of a place of sepulture in the valley, a circumstance which I attributed at the time to my living in a particular part of it, and being forbidden to extend my rambles to any considerable distance towards the sea. I have since thought it probable, however, that the Taipees, either desirous of removing from their sight the evidences of mortality, or prompted by a taste for rural beauty, may have some charming cemetery situated in the shadowy recesses along the base of the mountains. At Nukahiva, two or three large quadrangular peepees, heavily flagged, enclosed with regular stone walls, and shaded over and almost hidden from view by the interlacing branches of enormous trees, were pointed out to me as burial places. The bodies, I understood, were deposited in rude vaults beneath the flagging, and were suffered to remain there without being disinterred. Although nothing could be more strange and gloomy than the aspect of these places, where the lofty trees threw their dark shadows over rude blocks of stone, a stranger in looking at them would have discerned none of the ordinary evidences of a place of sepulture. 
During my stay in the valley, as none of its inmates were so accommodating as to die and be buried in order to gratify my curiosity with regard to their funeral rites, I was reluctantly obliged to remain in ignorance of them. As I have reason to believe, however, that the observances of the Taipees in these matters are the same with those of all the other tribes on the island, I will here relate a scene I chanced to witness at Nukahiva. A young man had died, about daybreak, in a house near the beach. I had been sent ashore that morning, and saw a good deal of the preparations they were making for his obsequies. The body, neatly wrapped in a new white tapa, was laid out in an open shed of coconut boughs, upon a bier constructed of elastic bamboos ingeniously twisted together. This was supported, about two feet from the ground, by large canes planted upright in the earth. Two females, of a dejected appearance, watched by its side, plaintively chanting and beating the air with large grass fans, whitened with pipe clay. In the dwelling-house adjoining, a numerous company were assembled, and various articles of food were being prepared for consumption. Two or three individuals, distinguished by headdresses of beautiful tapa, and wearing a great number of ornaments, appeared to officiate as masters of the ceremonies. By noon the entertainment had fairly begun, and we were told that it would last during the whole of the two following days. With the exception of those who mourned by the corpse, everyone seemed disposed to drown the sense of the late bereavement in convivial indulgence. The girls, decked out in their savage finery, danced. The old men chanted. The warriors smoked and chatted, and the young and lusty, of both sexes, feasted plentifully, and seemed to enjoy themselves as pleasantly as they could have done had it been a wedding. The islanders understand the art of embalming, and practice it with such success that the bodies of their great chiefs are frequently preserved for many years in the very houses where they died. I saw three of these in my visit to the Bay of Tior. One was enveloped in immense folds of tapa, with only the face exposed, and hung erect against the side of the dwelling. The others were stretched out upon biers of bamboo, in open, elevated temples, which seemed consecrated to their memory. The heads of enemies killed in battle are invariably preserved and hung up as trophies in the house of the conqueror. I am not acquainted with the process which is in use, but believe that fumigation is the principal agency employed. All the remains which I saw presented the appearance of a ham after being suspended for some time in a smoky chimney. But to return from the dead to the living. The late festival had drawn together, as I had every reason to believe, the whole population of the Vale, and consequently I was enabled to make some estimate with regard to its numbers. I should imagine that there were about two thousand inhabitants in Taipei, and no number could have been better adapted to the extent of the valley. The valley is some nine miles in length, and may average one in breadth, the houses being distributed at wide intervals throughout its whole extent, principally, however, towards the head of the vale. There are no villages. The houses stand here and there in the shadow of the groves, or are scattered along the banks of the winding stream. Their golden-hued bamboo sides and gleaming white thatch, forming a beautiful contrast to the perpetual verdure in which they are embowered. There are no roads of any kind in the valley, nothing but a labyrinth of footpaths twisting and turning among the thickets without end. The penalty of the fall presses very lightly upon the valley of Taipei, 
for with the one solitary exception of striking a light, I scarcely saw any piece of work performed there which caused the sweat to stand upon a single brow. As for digging and delving for a livelihood, the thing is altogether unknown. Nature has planted the breadfruit and the banana, and in her own good time she brings them to maturity, when the idle savage stretches forth his hand and satisfies his appetite. Ill-fated people. I shudder when I think of the change a few years will produce in their paradisaical abode, and probably when the most destructive vices and the worst attendances on civilization shall have driven all peace and happiness from the valley, the magnanimous French will proclaim to the world that the Marquesas Islands have been converted to Christianity. And this the Catholic world will doubtless consider as a glorious event. Heaven help the Isles of the Sea. The sympathy which Christendom feels for them has, alas, in too many instances, proved their bane. How little do some of these poor islanders comprehend when they look around them, that no inconsiderable part of their disasters originate in certain tea-party excitements, under the influence of which benevolent-looking gentlemen in white cravats solicit alms, and old ladies in spectacles, and young ladies in sober russet low gowns, contribute sixpences towards the creation of a fund, the object of which is to ameliorate the spiritual condition of the Polynesians, but whose end has almost invariably been to accomplish their temporal destruction. Let the savages be civilized, but civilize them with benefits, and not with evils, and let heathenism be destroyed, but not by destroying the heathen. The Anglo-Saxon hive have extirpated paganism from the greater part of the North American continent, but with it they have likewise extirpated the greater portion of the red race. Civilization is gradually sweeping from the earth the lingering vestiges of paganism, and at the same time the shrinking forms of its unhappy worshippers. Among the islands of Polynesia, no sooner are the images overturned, the temples demolished, and the idolaters converted into nominal Christians, then disease, vice, and premature death make their appearance. The depopulated land is then recruited from the rapacious hordes of enlightened individuals who settle themselves within its borders, and clamorously announce the progress of the truth. Neat villas, trim gardens, shaven lawns, spires, and cupolas arise while the poor savage soon finds himself an interloper in the country of his fathers, and that too on the very site of the hut where he was born. The spontaneous fruits of the earth, which God in his wisdom had ordained for the support of the indolent natives, remorselessly seized upon and appropriated by the stranger, are devoured before the eyes of the starving inhabitants, or sent on board the numerous vessels which now touch at their shores. When the famished wretches are cut off in this manner from their natural supplies, they are told by their benefactors to work and earn their support by the sweat of their brows. But to no fine gentleman born to hereditary opulence does manual labor come more unkindly than to the luxurious Indian when thus robbed of his bounty of heaven. Habituated to a life of indolence, he cannot and will not exert himself, and want disease and vice, all evils of foreign growth, soon terminate his miserable existence. But what matters all this? Behold the glorious result. The abominations of paganism, 
have given way to the pure rites of the Christian worship. The ignorant savage has been supplanted by the refined European. Look at Honolulu, the metropolis of the Sandwich Islands, a community of disinterested merchants and devoted self-exiled heralds of the cross, located on the very spot that twenty years ago was defiled by the presence of idolatry. What a subject for an eloquent Bible-meeting orator! Nor has such an opportunity for a display of missionary rhetoric been allowed to pass by unimproved. But when these philanthropists send us such glowing accounts of one half of their labors, why does their modesty restrain them from publishing the other half of the good they have wrought? Not until I visited Honolulu was I aware of the fact that the small remnant of the natives had been civilized into draft horses, and evangelized into beasts of burden. But so it is. They have been literally broken into the traces, and are harnessed to the vehicles of their spiritual instructors, like so many dumb brutes. Among a multitude of similar exhibitions that I saw, I shall never forget a robust, red-faced, and very ladylike personage, a missionary's spouse, who day after day, for months together, took her regular airings in a little go-cart drawn by two of the islanders, one an old grey-headed man, and the other a roguish stripling, both being, with the exception of the fig-leaf, as naked as when they were born. Over a level piece of ground, this pair of draft bipeds would go with a shambling, unsightly trot, the youngster hanging back all the time like a knowing horse, while the old hack plodded on and did all the work. Rattling along through the streets of the town in this stylish equipage, the lady looks about her as magnificently as any queen driven in state to her coronation. A sudden elevation and a sandy road, however, soon disturb her serenity. The small wheels become embedded in the loose soil. The old stager stands tugging and sweating, while the young one frisks about and does nothing. Not an inch does the chariot budge. Will the tender-hearted lady, who has left friends and home for the good of the souls of the poor heathen, will she think a little about their bodies and get out, and ease the wretched old man until the ascent is mounted? Not she. She could not dream of it. To be sure, she used to think nothing of driving the cows to pasture on the old farm in New England, but times have changed since then. So she retains her seat and bawls out, Hooky! Hooky! Pull! Pull! The old gentleman, frightened at the sound, labors away harder than ever, and the younger one makes a great show of straining himself, but takes care to keep one eye on his mistress, in order to know when to dodge out of harm's way. At last, the good lady loses all patience. Hooky! Hooky! And rap goes the heavy handle of her huge fan over the naked skull of the old savage, while the young one shies to one side and keeps beyond its range. Hooky, hooky, again she cries. Hooky tata kanaka, pull, strong men, but all in vain, and she is obliged in the end to dismount, and, sad necessity, actually to walk to the top of the hill. At the town where this paragon of humility resides is a spacious and elegant American chapel, where divine service is regularly performed. 
twice every Sabbath, towards the close of the exercises, may be seen a score or two of little wagons ranged along the railing in front of the edifice, with two squalid native footmen in the livery of nakedness standing by each, and waiting for the dismission of the congregation to draw their superiors home. Lest the slightest misconception should arise from anything thrown out in this chapter, or indeed in any other part of the volume, let me here observe that against the cause of missions in the abstract no Christian can possibly be opposed. It is in truth a just and holy cause. But if the great end proposed by it be spiritual, the agency employed to accomplish that end is purely earthly, and although the object in view be the achievement of much good, that agency may nevertheless be productive of evil. In short, missionary undertaking, however it may be blessed of heaven, is in itself but human, and subject, like everything else, to errors and abuses. And have not errors and abuses crept into the most sacred places? And may there not be unworthy or incapable missionaries abroad, as well as ecclesiastics of a similar character at home? May not the unworthiness or incapacity of those who assume apostolic functions upon the remote islands of the sea more easily escape detection by the world at large than if it were displayed in the heart of a city? An unwarranted confidence in the sanctity of its apostles, a proneness to regard them as incapable of guile, and an impatience of the least suspicion as to their rectitude as men or Christians, have ever been prevailing faults in the church. Nor is this to be wondered at, for subject as Christianity is to the assaults of unprincipled foes, we are naturally disposed to regard everything like an exposure of ecclesiastical misconduct as the offspring of malevolence or irreligious feeling. Not even this last consideration, however, shall deter me from the honest expression of my sentiments. There is something decidedly wrong in the practical operations of the Sandwich Islands mission. Those who from pure religious motives contribute to the support of this enterprise should take care to ascertain that their donations, flowing through many devious channels, at last affect their legitimate object, the conversion of the Hawaiians. I urge this not because I doubt the moral probity of those who disperse these funds, but because I know that they are not rightly applied. To read pathetic accounts of missionary hardships, and glowing descriptions of conversions, and baptisms taking place beneath palm trees is one thing and to go to the Sandwich Islands, and see the missionaries dwelling in picturesque and prettily furnished coral rock villas, whilst the miserable natives are committing all sorts of immoralities around them, is quite another. In justice to the missionaries, however, I will willingly admit that whatever evils may have resulted from their collective mismanagement of the business of the mission, and from the want of vital piety evinced by some of their number, still the present deplorable condition of the Sandwich Islands is by no means wholly chargeable against them. The demoralizing influence of a dissolute foreign population, and the frequent visits of all descriptions of vessels, have tended not a little to increase the evils alluded to. In a word, here, as in every case where civilization has in any way been introduced among those whom we call savages, she has scattered her vices and withheld her blessings. As wise a man as Shakespeare has said, 
that the bearer of evil tidings hath but a losing office, and so I suppose will it prove with me, in communicating to the trusting friends of the Hawaiian mission what has been disclosed in various portions of this narrative. I am persuaded, however, that as these disclosures will by their very nature attract attention, so they will lead to something which will not be without ultimate benefit to the cause of Christianity in the Sandwich Islands. I have but one thing more to add in connection with this subject. Those things which I have stated as facts will remain facts, in spite of whatever the bigoted or incredulous may say or write against them. My reflections, however, on those facts may not be free from error. If such be the case, I claim no further indulgence than should be conceded to every man whose object is to do good. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 27 I have already mentioned that the influence exerted over the people of the valley by their chiefs was mild in the extreme, and as to any general rule or standard of conduct by which the commonality were governed in their intercourse with each other, so far as my observation extended, I should be almost tempted to say that none existed on the island, except indeed the mysterious taboo be considered as such. During the time I lived among the Taipees, no one was ever put upon his trial for any offense against the public. To all appearances there were no courts of law or equity. There was no municipal police for the purpose of apprehending vagrants and disorderly characters. In short, there were no legal provisions whatever for the well-being and conservation of society, the enlightened end of civilized legislation. And yet everything went on in the valley with a harmony and smoothness unparalleled, I will venture to assert, in the most select, refined, and pious associations of mortals in Christendom. How are we to explain this enigma? These islanders were heathens, savages, a cannibals, and how came they, without the aid of established law, to exhibit in so eminent a degree that social order which is the greatest blessing and highest pride of the social state. It may reasonably be inquired, how were these people governed? How were their passions controlled in their everyday transactions? It must have been by an inherent principle of honesty and charity towards each other. They seemed to be governed by that sort of tacit common-sense law, which, say what they will of the inborn lawlessness of the human race, has its precepts graven on every breast. The grand principles of virtue and honor, however they may be distorted by arbitrary codes, are the same all the world over, and where these principles are concerned, the right or wrong of any action appears the same to the uncultivated as to the enlightened mind. It is to this indwelling, this universally diffused perception of what is just and noble, that the integrity of the Marquesans in their intercourse with each other is to be attributed. In the darkest nights they slept securely, with all their worldly wealth around them, in houses the doors of which were never fastened. The disquieting ideas of theft or assassination never disturbed them. Each islander reposed beneath his own palmetto thatching, or sat under his own breadfruit tree, with none to molest or alarm him. 
there was not a padlock in the valley, nor anything that answered the purpose of one. Still, there was no community of goods. This long spear, so elegantly carved and highly polished, belongs to Wormunu. It is far handsomer than the one which old Marheyo so greatly prizes. It is the most valuable article belonging to its owner. And yet I have seen it leaning against a coconut tree in the grove, and there it was found when sought for. Here is a sperm whale tooth, graven all over with cunning devices. It is the property of Carluna. It is the most precious of the damsel's ornaments. In her estimation, its price is far above rubies, and yet there hangs the dental jewel by its cord of braided bark in the girl's house, which is far back in the valley. The door is left open, and all the inmates have gone off to bathe in the stream. Footnote. The strict honesty with which the inhabitants of nearly all the Polynesian islands manifest towards each other is in striking contrast with the thieving propensities some of them evince in their intercourse with foreigners. It would almost seem that according to their peculiar code of morals, the pilfering of a hatchet or a rotten nail from a European is looked upon as a praiseworthy action. Or rather, it may be presumed, that bearing in mind the wholesale forays made upon them by their nautical visitors, they consider the property of the latter as a fair object of reprisal. This consideration, while it serves to reconcile an apparent contradiction in the moral character of the islanders, should in some measure alter that low opinion of it which the reader of South Sea Voyages is too apt to form. End of footnote. So much for the respect in which personal property is held in Taipei. How secure an investment of real property may be, I cannot take upon me to say. Whether the land of the valley was the joint property of its inhabitants, or whether it was parceled out among a certain number of landed proprietors who allowed everybody to squat and poach as much as he or she pleased, I never could ascertain. At any rate, musty parchments and title deeds there were none on the island and I am half inclined to believe that its inhabitants hold their broad valleys in fee simple from nature herself, to have and to hold so long as grass grows and water runs, or until their French visitors, by a summary mode of conveyancing, shall appropriate them to their own benefit and behoof. Yesterday I saw Cory Cory hie him away, armed with a long pole, with which, standing on the ground, he knocked down the fruit from the topmost boughs of the trees and brought them home in his basket of coconut leaves. Today I see an islander, whom I know to reside in a distant part of the valley, doing the selfsame thing. On the sloping bank of the stream are a number of banana trees. I have often seen a score or two of young people making a merry foray on the great golden clusters and bearing them off, one after another, to different parts of the vale, shouting and tramping as they went. No churlish old curmudgeon could have been the owner of that grove of breadfruit trees, or of these gloriously yellow bunches of bananas. From what I have said, it will be perceived that there is a vast difference between personal property and real estate in the Valley of Taipei. Some individuals, of course, are more wealthy than others. For example, the ridgepole of Marheo's house bends under the weight of many a huge package of tapa, his long couch is laid with mats placed one upon the other seven deep. Outside, Tinor has ranged along in her bamboo cupboard, or whatever the place may be called, a goodly array of calabashes and wooden trenchers. 
Now the house just beyond the grove, next to Marheyo's, occupied by Ruaruga, is not quite so well furnished. There are only three moderate-sized packages swinging overhead, there are only two layers of mats beneath, and the calabashes and trenchers are not so numerous, nor so tastefully stained and carved. But then Ruaruga has a house, not so pretty a one to be sure, but just as commodious as Marheo's, and I suppose if he wished to vie with his neighbor's establishment, he could do so with very little trouble. These, in short, constituted the chief differences perceivable in the relative wealth of the people in Taipei. Civilization does not engross all the virtues of humanity. She has not even her full share of them. They flourish in greater abundance and attain greater strength among many barbarous people. The hospitality of the wild Arab, the courage of the North American Indian, and the faithful friendships of some of the Polynesian nations far surpass anything of a similar kind among the polished communities of Europe. If truth and justice and the better principles of our nature cannot exist unless enforced by the statute book, how are we to account for the social condition of the Taipees? So pure and upright were they in all the relations of life, that entering their valley, as I did, under the most erroneous impressions of their character, I was soon led to exclaim in amazement, Are these the ferocious savages, the bloodthirsty cannibals of whom I have heard such frightful tales? They deal more kindly with each other, and are more humane, than many who study essays on virtue and benevolence, and who repeat every night that beautiful prayer breathed first by the lips of the divine and gentle Jesus. I will frankly declare that after passing a few weeks in this valley of the Marquesas, I formed a higher estimate of human nature than I had ever before entertained. But alas, since then I have been one of the crew of a man-of-war, and the pent-up wickedness of five hundred men has nearly overturned all my previous theories. There was one admirable trait in the general character of the Taipees which more than anything else secured my admiration. It was the unanimity of feeling they displayed on every occasion. With them there hardly appeared to be any difference of opinion upon any subject whatever. They all thought and acted alike. I do not conceive that they could support a debating society for a single night. There would be nothing to dispute about, and were they to call a convention to take into consideration the state of the tribe, its session would be a remarkably short one. They showed this spirit of unanimity in every action of life. Everything was done in concert and good fellowship. I will give an instance of this fraternal feeling. One day, in returning with Kori Kori from my accustomed visit to the tea, we passed by a little opening in the grove, on one side of which, my attendant informed me, was that afternoon to be built a dwelling of bamboo. At least a hundred of the natives were bringing materials to the ground, some carrying in their hands one or two of the canes which were to form the sides, others slender rods of the hibiscus, strung with palmetto leaves, for the roof. Everyone contributed something to the work, and by the united but easy and even indolent labors of all, the entire work was completed before sunset. The islanders, while employed in erecting this tenement, reminded me of a colony of beavers at work. To be sure, they were hardly as silent and demure as those wonderful creatures, nor were they by any means as diligent. To tell the truth, they were somewhat inclined to be lazy, but a perfect tumult of hilarity prevailed, 
and they worked together so unitedly, and seemed actuated by such an instinct of friendliness, that it was truly beautiful to behold. Not a single female took part in this employment, and if the degree of consideration in which the ever-adorable sex is held by the men be, as the philosophers affirm, a just criterion of the degree of refinement among a people, then I may truly pronounce the Taipees to be as polished a community as ever the sun shone upon. The religious restrictions of the taboo alone excepted, the women of the valley were allowed every possible indulgence. Nowhere are the ladies more assiduously courted, nowhere are they better appreciated as the contributors to our highest enjoyments, and nowhere are they more sensible of their power. Far different from their condition among many rude nations, where the women are made to perform all the work while their ungallant lords and masters lie buried in sloth, the gentle sex in the valley of Taipee were exempt from toil, if toil it might be called that, even in that tropical climate, never distilled one drop of perspiration. Their light household occupations, together with the manufacture of tapa, the plaiting of mats, and the polishing of drinking vessels, were the only employments pertaining to the women, and even these resembled those pleasant avocations which fill up the elegant morning leisure of our fashionable ladies at home. But in these occupations, slight and agreeable though they were, the giddy young girls very seldom engaged. Indeed, these willful, care-killing damsels were averse to all useful employment. Like so many spoiled beauties, they ranged through the groves, bathed in the stream, danced, flirted, played all manner of mischievous pranks, and passed their days in one merry round of thoughtless happiness. During my whole stay on the island I never witnessed a single quarrel, nor anything that in the slightest degree approached even to a dispute. The natives appeared to form one household, whose members were bound together by the ties of strong affection. The love of kindred I did not so much perceive, for it seemed blended in the general love, and where all were treated as brothers and sisters, it was hard to tell who were actually related to each other by blood. Let it not be supposed that I have overdrawn this picture. I have not done so. Nor let it be urged that the hostility of this tribe to foreigners, and the hereditary feuds they carry on against their fellow islanders beyond the mountains, are facts which contradict me. Not so. These apparent discrepancies are easily reconciled. By many a legendary tale of violence and wrong, as well as by events which have passed before their eyes, these people have been taught to look upon white men with abhorrence. The cruel invasion of their country by Porter has alone furnished them with ample provocation, and I can sympathize in the spirit which prompts the Taipei warrior to guard all the passes to his valley with the point of his leveled spear, and standing upon the beach, with his back turned upon his green home, to hold at bay the intruding European. As to the origin of the enmity of this particular clan towards the neighboring tribes, I cannot so confidently speak. I will not say that their foes are the aggressors, nor will I endeavor to palliate their conduct. But surely, if our evil passions must find vent, it is far better to expend them on strangers and aliens than in the bosom of the community in which we dwell. In many polished countries, civil contentions, as well as domestic enmities, are prevalent, at the same time that the most atrocious foreign wars are waged. How much less guilty, then, are our islanders, 
who of these three sins are only chargeable with one, and that the least criminal. The reader will ere long have reason to suspect that the Taipees are not free from the guilt of cannibalism, and he will then perhaps charge me with admiring a people against whom so odious a crime is chargeable. But this only enormity in their character is not half so horrible as it is usually described. According to the popular fictions, the crews of vessels, shipwrecked on some barbarous coast, are eaten alive like so many dainty joints by the uncivil inhabitants, and unfortunate voyagers are lured into smiling and treacherous bays, knocked in the head with outlandish war-clubs, and served up without any preliminary dressing. In truth, so horrific and improbable are these accounts, that many sensible and well-informed people will not believe that any cannibals exist, and place every book of voyages which purports to give any account of them on the same shelf with Bluebeard and Jack the Giant Killer, while others, implicitly crediting the most extravagant fictions, firmly believe that there are people in the world with tastes so depraved that they would infinitely prefer a single mouthful of material humanity to a good dinner of roast beef and plum pudding. But here, Truth, who loves to be centrally located, is again found between the two extremes. For cannibalism to a certain moderate extent is practiced among several of the primitive tribes in the Pacific, but it is upon the bodies of slain enemies alone, and horrible and fearful as the custom is, immeasurably as it is to be abhorred and condemned, still I assert that those who indulge in it are in other respects humane and virtuous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 28 there was no instance in which the social and kindly dispositions of the Taipees were more forcibly evinced than in the manner they conducted their great fishing parties. Four times during my stay in the valley, the young men assembled near the full of the moon, and went together on these excursions. As they were generally absent about forty-eight hours, I was led to believe that they went out towards the open sea some distance from the bay. The Polynesians seldom use a hook and line, almost always employing large, well-made nets, most ingeniously fabricated from the twisted fibers of a certain bark. I examined several of them which had been spread to dry upon the beach at Nukahiva. They resembled very much our own seines, and I should think very nearly as durable. All the South Sea Islanders are passionately fond of fish, but none of them can be more so than the inhabitants of Taipee. I could not comprehend, therefore, why they so seldom sought it in their waters, for it was only at stated times that the fishing parties were formed, and these occasions were always looked forward to with no small degree of interest. During their absence the whole population of the place were in a ferment, and nothing was talked about but pehi, pehi, fish, fish. Towards the time when they were expected to return, the vocal telegraph was put into operation. The inhabitants, who were scattered throughout the length of the valley, leaped upon rocks and into trees, shouting with delight at the thoughts of the anticipated treat. As soon as the approach of the party was announced, there was a general rush of the men towards the beach, some of them remaining, however, about the tea, in order to get matters in readiness for the reception of the fish, 
which were brought to the taboo groves in immense packages of leaves, each one of them being suspended from a pole carried on the shoulders of two men. I was present at the tea on one of these occasions, and the sight was most interesting. After all the packages had arrived, they were laid in a row under the veranda of the building and opened. The fish were all quite small, generally about the size of a herring, and of every variety of color. About one-eighth of the whole being reserved for the use of the tea itself, the remainder was divided into numerous smaller packages, which were immediately dispatched in every direction to the remotest parts of the valley. Arrived at their destination, these were in turn portioned out and equally distributed among the various houses of each particular district. The fish were under a strict taboo until the distribution was completed, which seemed to be effected in the most impartial manner. By the operation of this system, every man, woman, and child in the vale were at one and the same time partaking of this favorite article of food. Once I remember the party arrived at midnight, but the unseasonableness of the hour did not repress the impatience of the islanders. The carriers dispatched from the tea were to be seen hurrying in all directions through the deep groves, each individual preceded by a boy bearing a flaming torch of dried coconut boughs, which from time to time was replenished from the materials scattered along the path. The wild glare of these enormous flambeaux, lighting up with a startling brilliancy the innermost recesses of the vale, and seen moving rapidly along beneath the canopy of leaves, the savage shout of the excited messengers sounding the news of their approach, which was answered on all sides, and the strange appearance of their naked bodies, seen against the gloomy background, produced altogether an effect upon my mind that I shall long remember. It was on this same occasion that Cory Cory awakened me at the dead hour of night, and in a sort of transport communicated the intelligence contained in the words, Pay he pay me, fish come. As I happened to have been in a remarkably sound and refreshing slumber, I could not imagine why the information had not been deferred until morning. Indeed, I felt very much inclined to fly into a passion and box my valet's ears. But on second thoughts I got quietly up, and on going outside the house, was not a little interested by the moving illumination which I beheld. When old Marheo received his share of the spoils, immediate preparations were made for a midnight banquet. Calabashes of poey poey were filled to the brim, green breadfruit were roasted, and a huge cake of amar was cut up with a sliver of bamboo and laid out on an immense banana leaf. At this supper, we were lighted by several of the native tapers, held in the hands of young girls. These tapers are most ingeniously made. There is a nut abounding in the valley, called by the Taipees armor, closely resembling our common horse chestnut. The shell is broken, and the contents extracted whole. Any number of these are strung at pleasure upon the long elastic fiber that traverses the branches of the coconut tree. Some of these tapers are eight and ten feet in length, but being perfectly flexible, one end is held in a coil, while the other is lighted. The nut burns with a fitful bluish flame, and the oil that it contains is exhausted in about ten minutes. As one burns down, the next becomes ignited, and the ashes of the former are knocked into a coconut shell kept for the purpose. This primitive candle requires continual attention, 
and must be constantly held in the hand. The person so employed marks the lapse of time by the number of nuts consumed, which is easily learned by counting the bits of tapa distributed at regular intervals along the string. I grieve to state so distressing a fact, but the inhabitants of Taipei were in the habit of devouring fish much in the same way that a civilized being would eat a radish, and without any more previous preparation. They eat it raw, scales, bones, gills, and all the inside. The fish is held by the tail, and the head being introduced into the mouth, the animal disappears with a rapidity that would at first nearly lead one to imagine it had been launched bodily down the throat. Raw Fish Shall I ever forget my sensations when I first saw my island beauty devour one? Oh, heavens! Fayaway, how could you ever have contracted so vile a habit? However, after the first shock had subsided, the custom grew less odious in my eyes, and I soon accustomed myself to the sight. Let no one imagine, however, that the lovely Fayaway was in the habit of swallowing great vulgar-looking fishes. Oh, no! With her beautiful small hand she would clasp a delicate, little, golden-hued love of a fish, and eat it as elegantly and as innocently as though it were a Naples biscuit. But, alas, it was, after all, a raw fish, and all I can say is that Feiwei ate it in a more ladylike manner than any other girl of the valley. When at Rome, do as the Romans do, I held to be so good a proverb, that being in Taipei I made a point of doing as the Taipees did. Thus I ate poey poey as they did, I walked about in a garb striking for its simplicity, and I reposed on a community of couches, besides doing many other things in conformity with their peculiar habits. But the farthest I ever went in the way of conformity was on several occasions to regale myself with raw fish. These being remarkably tender, and quite small, the undertaking was not so disagreeable in the main, and after a few trials I positively began to relish them. However, I subjected them to a slight operation with my knife, previously to making my repast. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Taipei by Herman Melville Chapter 29 I think I must enlighten the reader a little about the natural history of the valley. Whence, in the name of Count Buffon and Baron Cuvier, came those dogs that I saw in Taipei? Dogs! Big, hairless rats, rather, all with smooth, shining, speckled hides, fat sides, and very disagreeable faces. Whence could they have come? That they were not the indigenous production of the region, I am firmly convinced. Indeed, they seemed aware of their being interlopers, looking fairly ashamed, and always trying to hide themselves in some dark corner. It was plain enough they did not feel at home in the vale, that they wished themselves well out of it, and back to the ugly country from which they must have come. Scurvy curs! They were my abhorrence. I should have liked nothing better than to have been the death of every one of them. In fact, on one occasion I intimated the propriety of a canine crusade to Mahavi. 
but the benevolent king would not consent to it. He heard me very patiently, but when I had finished, shook his head, and told me in confidence that they were taboo. As for the animal that made the fortune of the ex-Lord Mayor Whittington, I shall never forget the day that I was lying in the house about noon, everybody else being fast asleep, and, happening to raise my eyes, met those of a big, black, spectral cat, which sat erect in the doorway, looking at me with its frightful, goggling green orbs, like one of those monstrous imps that torment some of Tanir's saints. I am one of those unfortunate persons to whom the sight of these animals is at any time an insufferable annoyance. Thus, constitutionally averse to cats in general, the unexpected apparition of this one in particular utterly confounded me. When I had a little recovered from the fascination of its glance, I started up. The cat fled, and emboldened by this, I rushed out of the house in pursuit, but it had disappeared. It was the only time I ever saw one in the valley, and how it got there I cannot imagine. It is just possible that it might have escaped from one of the ships at Nukahiva. It was in vain to seek information on the subject from the natives, since none of them had seen the animal, the appearance of which remains a mystery to me to this day. Among the few animals which are to be met with in Taipei, there were none which I looked upon with more interest than a beautiful golden-hued species of lizard. It measured perhaps five inches from head to tail, and was most gracefully proportioned. Numbers of these creatures were to be seen basking in the sunshine upon the thatching of the houses, and multitudes at all hours of the day showed their glittering sides as they ran frolicking between the spears of grass, or raced in troops up and down the tall shafts of the coconut trees. But the remarkable beauty of these little animals, and their lively ways, were not their only claims upon my admiration. They were perfectly tame, and insensible to fear, Frequently, after seating myself upon the ground in some shady place during the heat of the day, I would be completely overrun with them. If I brushed one off my arm, it would leap perhaps to my hair. When I tried to frighten it away by gently pinching its leg, it would turn for protection to the very hand that attacked it. The birds are also remarkably tame. If you happened to see one perched upon a branch within reach of your arm, and advanced towards it, it did not fly away immediately, but waited quietly looking at you, until you could almost touch it, and then took wing slowly, less alarmed at your presence it would seem, than desirous of removing itself from your path. Had salt been less scarce in the valley than it was, this was the very place to have gone birding with it. I remember that once, on an uninhabited island of the Galapagos, a bird alighted on my outstretched arm while its mate chirped from an adjoining tree. Its tameness, far from shocking me, as a similar occurrence did Selkirk, imparted to me the most exquisite thrill of delight I ever experienced, and with somewhat of the same pleasure did I afterwards behold the birds and lizards of the valley show their confidence in the kindliness of man. Among the numerous afflictions which the Europeans have entailed upon some of the natives of the South Seas, is the accidental introduction among them of that enemy of all repose and ruffler of even tempers, the mosquito. At the Sandwich Islands, and at two or three of the society group, there are now thriving colonies of these insects, who promise ere long to supplant altogether the aboriginal sandflies. 
they sting, buzz, and torment from one end of the year to the other, and by incessantly exasperating the natives, materially obstruct the benevolent labors of the missionaries. From this grievous visitation, however, the Taipees are as yet wholly exempt, but its place is unfortunately in some degree supplied by the occasional presence of a minute species of fly, which, without stinging, is nevertheless productive of no little annoyance. The tameness of the birds and lizards is as nothing when compared to the fearless confidence of this insect. He will perch upon one of your eyelashes, and go to roost there if you do not disturb him, or force his way through your hair, or along the cavity of the nostril, till you almost fancy he is resolved to explore the very brain itself. On one occasion I was so inconsiderate as to yawn while a number of them were hovering around me. I never repeated the act. Some half-dozen darted into the open apartment, and began walking about its ceiling. The sensation was dreadful. I involuntarily closed my mouth, and the poor creatures being enveloped in inner darkness, must in their consternation have stumbled over my palate, and been precipitated into the gulf beneath. At any rate, though I afterwards charitably held my mouth open for at least five minutes with a view of affording egress to the stragglers, none of them ever availed themselves of the opportunity. There are no wild animals of any kind on the island, unless it be decided that the natives themselves are such. The mountains and the interior present to the eye nothing but silent solitudes, unbroken by the roar of beasts of prey, and enlivened by few tokens even of minute animated existence. There are no venomous reptiles, and no snakes of any description to be found in any of the valleys. In a company of Marquesan natives, the weather affords no topic of conversation. It can hardly be said to have any vicissitudes. The rainy season, it is true, brings frequent showers, but they are intermitting and refreshing. When an islander bound on some expedition rises from his couch in the morning, he is never solicitous to peep out and see how the sky looks, or ascertain from what quarter the wind blows. He is always sure of a fine day, and the promise of a few genial showers he hails with pleasure. There is never any of that remarkable weather on the island, which from time immemorial has been experienced in America, and still continues to call forth the wondering conversational exclamations of its elderly citizens. Nor do there ever occur any of those eccentric meteorological changes which elsewhere surprise us. In the Valley of Taipee, ice creams would never be rendered less acceptable by sudden frosts, nor would picnic parties be deferred on account of inauspicious snowstorms. For there, day follows day in one unvarying round of summer and sunshine, and the whole year is one long tropical month of June, just melting into July. It is this genial climate which causes the coconuts to flourish as they do. This invaluable fruit, brought to perfection by the rich soil of the Marquesas, and borne aloft on a stately column more than a hundred feet from the ground, would seem at first almost inaccessible to the simple natives. Indeed, the slender, smooth, and soaring shaft, without a single limb or protuberance of any kind to assist one in mounting it, presents an obstacle only to be overcome by the surprising agility and ingenuity of the islanders. It might be supposed that their indolence would lead them patiently to await the period when the ripened nuts, slowly parting from their stems, 
fall one by one to the ground. This certainly would be the case, were it not that the young fruit, encased in a soft green husk, with the incipient meat adhering in a jelly-like pellicle to its sides, and containing a bumper of the most delicious nectar, is what they chiefly prize. They have at least twenty different terms to express as many progressive stages in the growth of the nut. Many of them reject the fruit altogether except at a particular period of its growth, which, incredible as it may appear, they seemed to me to be able to ascertain within an hour or two. Others are still more capricious in their tastes, and after gathering together a heap of the nuts of all ages, and ingeniously tapping them, will sip first from one and then from another, as fastidiously as some delicate wine-bibber, experimenting glass in hand, among his dusty demijohns of different vintages. Some of the young men, with more flexible frames than their comrades, and perhaps with more courageous souls, had a way of walking up the trunk of the coconut trees, which to me seemed little less than miraculous, and when looking at them in the act, I experienced that curious perplexity a child feels when he beholds a fly moving feet uppermost along a ceiling. I will endeavor to describe the way in which Narni, a noble young chief, sometimes performed this feat for my peculiar gratification, but his preliminary performances must also be recorded. Upon my signifying my desire that he should pluck me the young fruit of some particular tree, the handsome savage, throwing himself into a sudden attitude of surprise, feigns astonishment at the apparent absurdity of the request. Maintaining this position for a moment, the strange emotions depicted on his countenance soften down into one of humorous resignation to my will, and then looking wistfully up to the tufted top of the tree, he stands on tiptoe, straining his neck and elevating his arm, as though endeavoring to reach the fruit from the ground where he stands. As if defeated in this childish attempt, he now sinks to the earth despondingly, beating his breast in well-acted despair, and then, starting to his feet all at once, and throwing back his head, raises both hands, like a schoolboy about to catch a falling ball. After continuing this for a moment or two, as if in expectation that the fruit was going to be tossed down to him by some good spirit in the treetop, he turns wildly round in another fit of despair, and scampers off to the distance of thirty or forty yards. Here he remains a while, eyeing the tree, the very picture of misery. But the next moment, receiving as it were a flash of inspiration, he rushes again towards it, and clasping both arms about the trunk, with one elevated a little above the other, he presses the soles of his feet close together against the tree, extending his legs from it until they are nearly horizontal and his body becomes doubled into an arch. Then, hand over hand, and foot after foot, he rises from the earth with steady rapidity, and almost before you are aware of it, has gained the cradled and embowered nest of nuts, and with boisterous glee flings the fruit to the ground. This mode of walking the tree is only practicable where the trunk declines considerably from the perpendicular. This, however, is almost always the case. Some of the perfectly straight shafts of the trees leaning at an angle of thirty degrees. The less active among the men, and many of the children of the valley, have another method of climbing. They take a broad and stout piece of bark, and secure either end of it to their ankles, so that when the feet thus confined are extended apart, 
a space of little more than twelve inches is left between them. This contrivance greatly facilitates the act of climbing. The band, pressed against the tree, and closely embracing it, yields a pretty firm support, while with the arms clasped about the trunk, and at regular intervals sustaining the body, the feet are drawn up nearly a yard at a time, and a corresponding elevation of the hands immediately succeeds. In this way I have seen little children, scarcely five years of age, fearlessly climbing the slender pole of a young coconut tree, and while hanging perhaps fifty feet from the ground, receive the plaudits of their parents beneath, who clapped their hands and encouraged them to mount still higher. What, thought I, on first witnessing one of these exhibitions, would the nervous mothers of America and England say to a similar display of hardihood in any of their children? The Lacedaemonian matrons might have approved of it, but most modern dames would have gone into hysterics at the sight. At the top of the coconut tree, the numerous branches, radiating on all sides from a common center, form a sort of green and waving basket, between the leaflets of which you just discern the nuts, thickly clustering together, and on the loftier trees looking no bigger from the ground than bunches of grapes. I remember one adventurous little fellow, Tutu was the rascal's name, who had built himself a sort of aerial baby-house in the picturesque tuft of a tree adjoining Marheyo's habitation. He used to spend hours there, rustling among the branches and shouting with delight every time the strong gusts of wind rushing down from the mountain's side swayed to and fro the tall and flexible column on which he was perched. Whenever I heard Tutu's musical voice, sounding strangely to the ear from so great a height, and beheld him peeping down upon me from out his leafy covert, he always recalled to my mind Dibdin's lines. There's a sweet little cherub that sits up aloft, to look out for the life of poor Jack. Birds, bright and beautiful birds, fly over the valley of Taipee. You see them perched aloft among the immovable boughs of the majestic breadfruit trees, or gently swaying on the elastic branches of the omu, skimming over the palmetto thatching of the bamboo huts, passing like spirits on the wing through the shadows of the grove, and sometimes descending into the bosom of the valley in gleaming flights from the mountains. Their plumage is purple and azure, crimson and white, black and gold, with bills of every tint, bright bloody red, jet black and ivory white, and their eyes are bright and sparkling. They go sailing through the air in starry throngs. But alas, the spell of dumbness is upon them all. There is not a single warbler in the valley. I know not why it was, but the sight of these birds, generally the ministers of gladness, always oppressed me with melancholy. As in their dumb beauty they hovered by me whilst I was walking, or looked down upon me with steady, curious eyes from out the foliage, I was almost inclined to fancy that they knew they were gazing upon a stranger, and that they commiserated his fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 30 In one of my strolls with Cory Cory, in passing along the border of a thick growth of bushes, 
my attention was arrested by a singular noise. On entering the thicket, I witnessed for the first time the operation of tattooing as performed by these islanders. I beheld a man extended flat upon his back on the ground, and despite the forced composure of his countenance, it was evident that he was suffering agony. His tormentor bent over him, working away for all the world like a stone-cutter with mallet and chisel. In one hand he held a short, slender stick, pointed with a shark's tooth, on the upright end of which he tapped with a small hammer-like piece of wood, thus puncturing the skin, and charging it with the coloring matter in which the instrument was dipped. A coconut shell containing this fluid was placed upon the ground. It is prepared by mixing with a vegetable juice the ashes of the armor, or candle-nut, always preserved for the purpose. Beside the savage, and spread out upon a piece of soiled tapa, were a great number of curious black-looking little implements of bone and wood, used in the various divisions of his art. A few terminated in a single fine point, and, like very delicate pencils, were employed in giving the finishing touches, or in operating upon the more sensitive portions of the body, as was the case in the present instance. Others presented several points distributed in a line, somewhat resembling the teeth of a saw. These were employed in the coarser parts of the work, and particularly in pricking in straight marks. Some presented their points disposed in small figures, and being placed upon the body, were, by a single blow of the hammer, made to leave their indelible impression. I observed a few, the handles of which were mysteriously curved, as if intended to be introduced into the orifice of the ear, with a view, perhaps, of beating the tattoo upon the tympanum. Altogether the sight of these strange instruments recalled to mind that display of cruel-looking mother-of-pearl-handled things which one sees in their velvet-lined cases at the elbow of a dentist. The artist was not at this time engaged on an original sketch, his subject being a venerable savage, whose tattooing had become somewhat faded with age and needed a few repairs, and accordingly he was merely employed in touching up the works of some of the old masters of the Taipei school, as delineated upon the human canvas before him. The parts operated upon were the eyelids, where a longitudinal streak, like the one which adorned Kori Kori, crossed the countenance of the victim. In spite of all the efforts of the poor old man, Sundry twitchings and screwings of the muscles of the face denoted the exquisite sensibility of these shutters to the windows of his soul, which he was now having repainted. But the artist, with a heart as callous as that of an army surgeon, continued his performance, enlivening his labors with a wild chant, tapping away the while as merrily as a woodpecker. So deeply engaged was he in his work that he had not observed our approach, until, after having enjoyed an unmolested view of the operation, I chose to attract his attention. As soon as he perceived me, supposing that I sought him in his professional capacity, he seized hold of me in a paroxysm of delight, and was all eagerness to begin the work. When, however, I gave him to understand that he had altogether mistaken my views, nothing could exceed his grief and disappointment. But, recovering from this, he seemed determined not to credit my assertion, and grasping his implements, he flourished them about, in fearful vicinity to my face, going through an imaginary performance of his art, and every moment bursting into some admiring exclamation at the beauty of his designs. Horrified at the bare thought of being rendered hideous for life if the wretch were to execute his purpose upon me, I struggled to get away from him, 
while Cory Cory, turning traitor, stood by, and besought me to comply with the outrageous request. On my reiterated refusals, the excited artist got half beside himself, and was overwhelmed with sorrow at losing so noble an opportunity of distinguishing himself in his profession. The idea of engrafting his tattooing upon my white skin filled him with all a painter's enthusiasm. Again and again he gazed into my countenance, and every fresh glimpse seemed to add to the vehemence of his ambition. Not knowing to what extremities he might proceed, and shuddering at the ruin he might inflict upon my figurehead, I now endeavored to draw off his attention from it, and holding out my arm in a fit of desperation, signed to him to commence operations. But he rejected the compromise indignantly, and still continued his attack on my face, as though nothing short of that would satisfy him. When his forefinger swept across my features, in laying out the borders of those parallel bands which were to encircle my countenance, the flesh fairly crawled upon my bones. At last, half wild with terror and indignation, I succeeded in breaking away from the three savages, and fled towards old Marheo's house, pursued by the indomitable artist, who ran after me, implements in hand. Cory Cory, however, at last interfered, and drew him off from the chase. This incident opened my eyes to a new danger, and I now felt convinced that in some luckless hour I should be disfigured in such a manner as never more to have the face to return to my countrymen, even should an opportunity offer. These apprehensions were greatly increased by the desire which King Mahavi and several of the inferior chiefs now manifested that I should be tattooed. The pleasure of the king was first signified to me some three days after my casual encounter with Karki the artist. Heavens! What imprecations I showered upon that Karki! Doubtless he had plotted a conspiracy against me and my countenance, and would never rest until his diabolical purpose was accomplished. Several times I met him in various parts of the valley, and invariably, whenever he described me, he came running after me with his mallet and chisel, flourishing them about my face as if he longed to begin. What an object he would have made of me! When the king first expressed his wish to me, I made known to him my utter abhorrence of the measure, and worked myself into such a state of excitement that he absolutely stared at me in amazement. It evidently surpassed his majesty's comprehension how any sober-minded and sensible individual could entertain the least possible objection to so beautifying an operation. Soon afterwards he repeated his suggestion, and meeting with a like repulse, showed some symptoms of displeasure at my obduracy. On his a third time renewing his request, I plainly perceived that something must be done, or my visage was ruined forever. I therefore screwed up my courage to the sticking point, and declared my willingness to have both arms tattooed from just above the wrist to the shoulder. His majesty was greatly pleased at the proposition, and I was congratulating myself with having thus compromised the matter, when he intimated that as a thing, of course, my face was first to undergo the operation. I was fairly driven to despair. Nothing but the utter ruin of my face divine, as the poets call it, would, I perceived, satisfy the inexorable Mahavi and his chiefs, or rather, that infernal Karki, for he was at the bottom of it all. The only consolation afforded me was a choice of patterns. 
I was at perfect liberty to have my face spanned by three horizontal bars, after the fashion of my serving-man's, or to have as many oblique stripes slanting across it, or if, like a true courtier, I chose to model my style on that of royalty, I might wear a sort of Freemason badge upon my countenance in the shape of a mystic triangle. However, I would have none of these, though the king most earnestly impressed upon my mind that my choice was wholly unrestricted. At last, seeing my unconquerable repugnance, he ceased to importune me. But not so some other of the savages. Hardly a day passed, but I was subjected to their annoying requests, until at last my existence became a burden to me. The pleasures I had previously enjoyed no longer afforded me delight, and all my former desire to escape from the valley now revived with additional force. A fact which I soon afterwards learned augmented my apprehension. The whole system of tattooing was, I found, connected with their religion, and it was evident, therefore, that they were resolved to make a convert of me. In the decoration of the chiefs, it seems to be necessary to exercise the most elaborate penciling, while some of the inferior natives looked as if they had been daubed over indiscriminately with a house-painter's brush. I remember one fellow who prided himself hugely upon a great oblong patch placed high upon his back, and who always reminded me of a man with a blister of Spanish flies stuck between his shoulders. Another, whom I frequently met, had the hollow of his eyes tattooed in two regular squares, and his visual organs being remarkably brilliant, they gleamed forth from out this setting like a couple of diamonds inserted in ebony. Although convinced that tattooing was a religious observance, still the nature of the connection between it and the superstitious idolatry of the people was a point upon which I could never obtain any information. Like the still more important system of the taboo, it always appeared inexplicable to me. There is a marked similarity, almost an identity, between the religious institutions of most of the Polynesian islands, and in all exists the mysterious taboo, restricted in its uses to a greater or less extent. So strange and complex in its arrangements is this remarkable system, that I have in several cases met with individuals who, after residing for years among the islands in the Pacific, and acquiring a considerable knowledge of the language, have nevertheless been altogether unable to give any satisfactory account of its operations. Situated as I was in the Taipei Valley, I perceived every hour the effects of this all-controlling power, without in the least comprehending it. Those effects were indeed widespread and universal, pervading the most important as well as the minutest transactions of life. The savage, in short, lives in the continual observance of its dictates, which guide and control every action of his being. For several days after entering the valley, I had been saluted at least fifty times in the twenty-four hours with the talismanic word taboo shrieked in my ears at some gross violation of its provisions, of which I had unconsciously been guilty. The day after our arrival, I happened to hand some tobacco to Toby over the head of a native who sat between us. He started up, as if stung by an adder, while the whole company, manifesting an equal degree of horror, simultaneously screamed out, Taboo! I never again perpetrated a similar piece of ill-manners, which indeed was forbidden by the canons of good breeding, as well as by the mandates of the taboo. 
but it was not always so easy to perceive wherein you had contravened the spirit of this institution. I was many times called to order, if I may use the phrase, when I could not for the life of me conjecture what particular offense I had committed. One day I was strolling through a secluded portion of the valley, and hearing the musical sound of the cloth mallet at a little distance, I turned down a path that conducted me in a few moments to a house where there were some half-dozen girls employed in making tapa. This was an operation I had frequently witnessed, and had handled the bark in all the various stages of its preparation. On the present occasion, the females were intent upon their occupation, and after looking up and talking gaily to me for a few moments, they resumed their employment. I regarded them for a while in silence, and then carelessly picking up a handful of the material that lay around, proceeded unconsciously to pick it apart. While thus engaged, I was suddenly startled by a scream, like that of a whole boarding school of young ladies just on the point of going into hysterics. Leaping up with the idea of seeing a score of Hapar warriors about to perform anew the Sabine atrocity, I found myself confronted by the company of girls, who, having dropped their work, stood before me with staring eyes, swelling bosoms, and fingers pointed in horror towards me. Thinking that some venomous reptile must be concealed in the bark which I held in my hand, I began cautiously to separate and examine it. Whilst I did so, the horrified girls redoubled their shrieks. Their wild cries and frightened motions actually alarmed me, and throwing down the tapa, I was about to rush from the house, when in the same instant their clamors ceased, and one of them seizing me by the arm, pointed to the broken fibers that had just fallen from my grasp, and screamed in my ears the fatal word, Taboo. I subsequently found out that the fabric they were engaged in making was of a peculiar kind, destined to be worn on the heads of the females, and through every stage of its manufacture was guarded by a rigorous taboo, which interdicted the whole masculine gender from even so much as touching it. Frequently in walking through the groves, I observed breadfruit and coconut trees, with a wreath of leaves twined in a peculiar fashion about their trunks. This was the mark of the taboo. The trees themselves, their fruit, and even the shadows they cast upon the ground, were consecrated by its presence. In the same way a pipe, which the king had bestowed upon me, was rendered sacred in the eyes of the natives, none of whom could I ever prevail upon to smoke from it. The bowl was encircled by a woven band of grass, somewhat resembling those Turks' heads occasionally worked in the handles of our whipstocks. A similar badge was once braided about my wrist by the royal hand of Mahavi himself, who, as soon as he had concluded the operation, pronounced me taboo. This occurred shortly after Toby's disappearance, and were it not that from the first moment I had entered the valley the natives had treated me with uniform kindness, I should have supposed that their conduct afterwards was to be ascribed to the fact that I had received this sacred investiture. The capricious operations of the taboo is not its least remarkable feature. To enumerate them all would be impossible. Black hogs, infants to a certain age, women in an interesting situation, young men while the operation of tattooing their faces is going on, and certain parts of the valley during the continuance of a shower are alike fenced about by the operation of the taboo. I witnessed a striking instance of its effects in the Bay of Tior, 
my visit to which place has been alluded to in a former part of this narrative. On that occasion, our worthy captain formed one of the party. He was a most insatiable sportsman. Outward bound, and off the pitch of Cape Horn, he used to sit on the taffrail, and keep the steward loading three or four old fowling pieces, with which he would bring down albatrosses, cape pigeons, jays, petrels, and diverse other marine fowl, who followed chattering in our wake. The sailors were struck aghast at his impiety, and one and all attributed our forty days beating about that horrid headland to his sacrilegious slaughter of these inoffensive birds. At Tior he evinced the same disregard for the religious prejudices of the islanders, as he had previously shown for the superstitions of the sailors. Having heard that there were a considerable number of fowls in the valley, the progeny of some cocks and hens accidentally left there by an English vessel, and which, being strictly tabooed, flew about almost in a wild state, he determined to break through all restraints, and be the death of them. Accordingly, he provided himself with a most formidable-looking gun, and announced his landing on the beach by shooting down a noble cock that was crowing what proved to be his own funeral dirge, on the limb of an adjoining tree. "'Taboo!' shrieked the affrighted savages. "'Oh, hang your taboo!' says the nautical sportsman. "'Tuck taboo to the marines!' and bang went the piece again, and down came another victim. At this the natives ran scampering through the groves, horror-struck at the enormity of the act. All that afternoon the rocky sides of the valley rang with successive reports, and the superb plumage of many a beautiful fowl was ruffled by the fatal bullet. Had it not been that the French admiral with a large party were then in the glen, I have no doubt that the natives, although their tribe was small and dispirited, would have inflicted summary vengeance upon the man who thus outraged their most sacred institutions. As it was, they contrived to annoy him not a little. Thirsting with his exertions, the skipper directed his steps to a stream, but the savages, who had followed at a little distance, perceiving his object, rushed towards him and forced him away from its bank. His lips would have polluted it. Wearied at last, he sought to enter a house that he might rest for a while on the mats. Its inmates gathered tumultuously about the door, and denied him admittance. He coaxed and blustered by turns, but in vain. The natives were neither to be intimidated nor appeased, and as a final resort he was obliged to call together his boat's crew, and pull away from what he termed the most infernal place he ever stepped upon. Lucky was it for him, and for us, that we were not honored on our departure by a salute of stones from the hands of the exasperated Tiors. In this way, on the neighboring island of Ropo, were killed, but a few weeks previously, and for a nearly similar offense, the master and three of the crew of the K. I cannot determine with anything approaching to certainty what power it is that imposes the taboo. When I consider the slight disparity of condition among the islanders, the very limited and inconsiderable prerogatives of the king and chiefs, and the loose and indefinite functions of the priesthood, most of whom are hardly to be distinguished from the rest of their countrymen, I am wholly at a loss where to look for the authority which regulates this potent institution. It is imposed upon something today, and withdrawn tomorrow, while its operations in other cases are perpetual. Sometimes its restrictions only affect a single individual, sometimes a particular family, 
sometimes a whole tribe, and in a few instances they extend not merely over the various clans on a single island, but over all the inhabitants of an entire group. In illustration of this latter peculiarity, I may cite the law which forbids a female to enter a canoe, a prohibition which prevails upon all the northern Marquesas Islands. The word itself, taboo, is used in more than one signification. It is sometimes used by a parent to his child, when in the exercise of paternal authority he forbids it to perform a particular action. Anything opposed to the ordinary customs of the islanders, although not expressly prohibited, is said to be taboo. The Taipei language is one very difficult to be acquired. It bears a close resemblance to the other Polynesian dialects, all of which show a common origin. The duplication of words, as lumi-lumi, poi-poi, mui-mui, is one of their peculiar features. But another, and a more annoying one, is the different senses in which one and the same word is employed. Its various meanings all have a certain connection, which only makes the matter more puzzling. So one brisk, lively little word is obliged, like a servant in a poor family, to perform all sorts of duties. For instance, one particular combination of syllables expresses the ideas of sleep, rest, reclining, sitting, leaning, and all other things anywise analogous thereto, the particular meaning being shown chiefly by a variety of gestures and the eloquent expression of the countenance. The intricacy of these dialects is another peculiarity. In the missionary college at Lahaina Luna, on Maui, one of the Sandwich Islands, I saw a tabular exhibition of a Hawaiian verb, conjugated through all its moods and tenses. It covered the side of a considerable apartment, and I doubt whether Sir William Jones himself would not have despaired of mastering it. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 31 Sadly discursive as I have already been, I must still further entreat the reader's patience, as I am about to string together, without any attempted order, a few odds and ends of things not hitherto mentioned, but which are either curious in themselves, or peculiar to the Taipees. There was one singular custom, observed in old Marheyo's domestic establishment, which often excited my surprise. Every night, before retiring, the inmates of the house gathered together on the mats, and squatting upon their haunches, after the universal practice of these islanders, would commence a low, dismal, and monotonous chant, accompanying the voice with the instrumental melody produced by two small half-rotten sticks tapped slowly together, a pair of which were held in the hands of each person present. Thus would they employ themselves for an hour or two, sometimes longer. Lying in the gloom which wrapped the further end of the house, I could not avoid looking at them, although the spectacle suggested nothing but unpleasant reflections. The flickering rays of the armor-nut just served to reveal their savage lineaments, without dispelling the darkness that hovered about them. Sometimes when, after falling into a kind of doze, and awaking suddenly in the midst of these doleful chantings, 
my eye would fall upon the wild-looking group engaged in their strange occupation with their naked, tattooed limbs and shaven heads disposed in a circle, I was almost tempted to believe that I gazed upon a set of evil beings in the act of working a frightful incantation. What was the meaning or purpose of this custom, whether it was practiced merely as a diversion, or whether it was a religious exercise, a sort of family prayers, I never could discover. The sounds produced by the natives on these occasions were of a most singular description, and had I not actually been present, I never would have believed that such curious noises could have been produced by human beings. To savages generally is imputed a guttural articulation. This, however, is not always the case, especially among the inhabitants of the Polynesian archipelago. The labial melody with which the Taipei girls carry on an ordinary conversation, giving a musical prolongation to the final syllable of every sentence, and chirping out some of the words with a liquid, bird-like accent, was singularly pleasing. The men, however, are not quite so harmonious in their utterance, and when excited upon any subject would work themselves up into a sort of wordy paroxysm, during which all descriptions of rough-sided sounds were projected from their mouths, with a force and rapidity which was absolutely astonishing. Although these savages are remarkably fond of chanting, Still, they appear to have no idea whatever of singing, at least as that art is practiced among other nations. I shall never forget the first time I happened to roar out a stave in the presence of the noble Mahavi. It was a stanza from the Bavarian broom-seller. His Taipean majesty, with all his court, gazed upon me in amazement, as if I had displayed some preternatural faculty which heaven had denied to them. The king was delighted with the verse, but the chorus fairly transported him. At his solicitation I sang it again and again, and nothing could be more ludicrous than his vain attempts to catch the air and the words. The royal savage seemed to think that by screwing all the features of his face into the end of his nose he might possibly succeed in the undertaking, but it failed to answer the purpose, and in the end he gave it up, and consoled himself by listening to my repetition of the sounds fifty times over. Previous to Mahavi's making the discovery, I had never been aware that there was anything of the nightingale about me, but I was now promoted to the place of court minstrel, in which capacity I was afterwards perpetually called upon to officiate. Besides the sticks and the drums, there are no other musical instruments among the Taipees, except one which might appropriately be denominated a nasal flute. It is somewhat longer than an ordinary fife is made of a beautiful scarlet-colored reed, and has four or five stops, with a large hole near one end, which latter is held just beneath the left nostril, the other nostril being closed by a peculiar movement of the muscles about the nose. The breath is forced into the tube, and produces a soft, dulcet sound, which is varied by the fingers running at random over the stops. This is a favorite recreation with the females, and one in which Fayaway greatly excelled. Awkward as such an instrument may appear, it was in Fayaway's delicate little hands one of the most graceful I have ever seen. A young lady, in the act of tormenting a guitar strung about her neck by a couple of yards of blue ribbon, is not half so engaging. Singing was not the only means I possessed of diverting the royal Mahavi and his easy-going subjects. 
nothing afforded them more pleasure than to see me go through the attitudes of a pugilistic encounter. As not one of the natives had soul enough in him to stand up like a man, and allow me to hammer away at him, for my own personal gratification and that of the king, I was necessitated to fight with an imaginary enemy, whom I invariably made to knock under to my superior prowess. Sometimes, when this sorely battered shadow retreated precipitately towards a group of the savages, and following him up I rushed among them, dealing my blows right and left, they would disperse in all directions, much to the enjoyment of Mahavi, the chiefs, and themselves. The noble art of self-defense appeared to be regarded by them as the peculiar gift of the white man, and I make little doubt but that they supposed armies of Europeans were drawn up, provided with nothing else but bony fists and stout hearts, with which they set to in column, and pummeled one another at the word of command. One day, in company with Kori Kori, I had repaired to the stream for the purpose of bathing, when I observed a woman sitting upon a rock in the midst of the current, and watching with the liveliest interest the gambols of something which at first I took to be an uncommonly large species of frog that was sporting in the water near her. Attracted by the novelty of the sight, I waded towards the spot where she sat, and could hardly credit the evidence of my senses when I beheld a little infant, the period of whose birth could not have extended back many days, paddling about as if it had just risen to the surface after being hatched into existence at the bottom. Occasionally the delighted parent reached out her hands towards it, when the little thing, uttering a faint cry and striking out its tiny limbs, would sidle for the rock, and the next moment be clasped to its mother's bosom. This was repeated again and again, the baby remaining in the stream about a minute at a time. Once or twice it made wry faces at swallowing a mouthful of water, and choked and spluttered as if on the point of strangling. At such times, however, the mother snatched it up, and by a process scarcely to be mentioned, obliged it to eject the fluid. For several weeks afterwards I observed this woman bringing her child down to the stream regularly every day, in the cool of the morning and evening, and treating it to a bath. No wonder that the South Sea Islanders are so amphibious a race, when they are thus launched into the water as soon as they see the light. I am convinced that it is as natural for a human being to swim as it is for a duck, and yet in civilized communities how many able-bodied individuals die, like so many drowning kittens, from the occurrence of the most trivial accidents. The long, luxuriant, and glossy tresses of the Taipi damsels often attracted my admiration. A fine head of hair is the pride and joy of every woman's heart. Whether, against the express will of providence, it is twisted up on the crown of the head, and there coiled away like a rope on a ship stack, whether it be stuck behind the ears and hangs down like the swag of a small window curtain, or whether it be permitted to flow over the shoulders in natural ringlets, it is always the pride of the owner, and the glory of the toilette. The Taipei girls devote much of their time to the dressing of their fair and redundant locks. After bathing, as they sometimes do five or six times every day, the hair is carefully dried, and if they have been in the sea, invariably washed in fresh water, and anointed with a highly scented oil extracted from the meat of the coconut. This oil is obtained in great abundance by the following very simple process. 
A large vessel of wood, with holes perforated in the bottom, is filled with the pounded meat and exposed to the rays of the sun. As the oleaginous matter exudes, it falls in drops through the apertures into a wide-mouthed calabash placed underneath. After a sufficient quantity has been thus collected, the oil undergoes a purifying process, and is then poured into the small spherical shells of the nuts of the moo tree, which are hollowed out to receive it. These nuts are then hermetically sealed with a resinous gum, and the vegetable fragrance of their green rind soon imparts to the oil a delightful odor. After the lapse of a few weeks, the exterior shell of the nuts becomes quite dry and hard, and assumes a beautiful carnation tint, and when opened, they are found to be about two-thirds full of an ointment of a light yellow color, and diffusing the sweetest perfume. This elegant little odorous globe would not be out of place even upon the toilette of a queen. Its merits as a preparation for the hair are undeniable. It imparts to it a superb gloss and a silky fineness. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.